That coffee is an assault. (laughs) (laughs) This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 241 of The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. For the beginning Monday, the 22nd of July, 2013, with me, Andy Zaltzman, back from our two weeks off. Uh, what's happening in the cricket, Chris? And ready to focus exclusively, <laughs> exclusively on The Bugle. What's that? What's now? Just what, uh, because there's some seriously heavy shit going down that frankly needs satirising in this world. What the hell was Bairstow doing yesterday with that shot? And there are so many big problems in the world, like, you know, Syria and money and shit like that. And we really have a duty as comedians to hold up a mirror to the world. I mean, seriously, hitting a full toss straight back to the bowler right near the end of play. Jeez, honestly, how's that kind of batting going to solve the Middle East crisis? And joining me from New York City, ex- the exemplary host in the temporary post, the outstanding stand-in, the Gerald <laughs> Ford of comedy, John Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. Buglers, you might remember four years ago, if you were listening back that long, the Ashes were on. Andy is distracted at this time. Of year. Well, it's, not, it's not even fair to say he's distracted, because that, uh, that would imply that he has any attention on what he's doing right now, <laughs> rather than 100% focused on the cricket. Uh, we are back uh, after a couple of weeks away. It was lovely to see you and your family, Andy, have a well, little you too, fish too. and chips yeah. before getting on the plane. Such a... Such a great choice for a digestive <laughs> meal before uh, an international flight. Right. Uh, less yeah. said about that, the better. Sit you down hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I've been uh, I've been back as a substitute host, as you say, for the Daily Show all week. Where so far I've, I've succeeded, surprisingly, in not taking the show off air, but only just because <laughs> on Monday uh, I don't know if. Uh, any buglers watching the Daily Show, after the first two segments of the show were finished, we were just getting ready to do the interview segment with Aaron Sorkin, and there was this weird, loud, guttural sound that started coming out of the speakers, like like a Skrillex gig in a functioning <laughs> abattoir. And uh, <laughs> this is one for all you dubstep <laughs> fans out there. I'm, I'm and, a little uh, out of the loop with Skrillex's recent he's, over. He's a DJ whose music right. sounds like this, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> it's... <laughs> and it... Oh, it, sounds, yeah. it sounds closer to that than really makes sense. Right. Uh, it sounds like a hippo anyway, giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, it's basically that. You know, you've, if you've ever seen a hippo giving birth, you just inherently start dancing to it anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, and if you haven't, you have not lived. Go and, <laughs> go and see those hippos. Uh, and then all the monitors in the studio went black, all the cameras went down, half the studio went dark, and all the edit base and control room lost power. And I thought... This makes sense. I don't know why I'm surprised. I have broken the Daily Show. <laughs> I can't complain. If anything, this happened a lot later than I thought it would. So we had to do the interview with Aaron Sorkin on a pair of handheld cameras and then run the tapes, physically run the tapes over to the Colbert studio <laughs> and frantically edit the show down in time to put it on air that night. And just in time, I might add. There were only a few minutes to spare. And the whole crew were uh, incredible in keeping calm in the face of what seemed to be electrical Armageddon. Uh, especially because in the midst of the mayhem, and I really admire this, Andy, I know you will too, yep. they still managed to find time to talk shit to me. <laughs> there, was, there were literally panicked studio engineers running around saying, oh, I've got to say, John, this is a 
never happened before in the history of the show, and I've been here 15 years. You've been hosting for, what, a few weeks now? Funny that. I mean, I'm not pointing the finger of blame. It's just <laughs> I am pointing my finger <laughs> at you. <laughs> it's not what you want to hear, Andy. That's what, what? you know, when, uh, when there are noises coming out of equipment that seem to suggest the studio's about to explode. <laughs> and then there was one other... Uh, uh, fantastic moment this week. On Tuesday, I met my first dame, Andy. I've never met oh, a yeah. dame before. Have you met a dame? Uh, no idea, actually. Um, you, well, you'd know if you'd met a dame, Andy. You'd know. Yeah. You'd, you'd know. <laughs> uh, my, my dame was uh, Dame Helen Mirren. She was a guest on the show. And I had to end the, the previous act of the show before the interview uh, dressed in an adult nappy or a diaper, as you, they call them John, here in the US. You had to or, or chose to, John. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't get semantic I, I, on you. But, I chose, you know, I chose to, yeah, I chose to. Just uh, I won't even try to explain why I was uh, <laughs> dressed like that, but uh, it turns out that the the lack of dignity it takes to uh, put one of those on actually pales in comparison to the lack of dignity it takes to take one off. You have to release both sides and then pull the whole thing forward through your legs. And as I did that, Andy, holding the nappy in front of me with my trousers around my ankles, I looked up... And I saw Dame Helen Mirren staring back at me yeah. with a smile on her face that said, you look f***ing stupid right now. <laughs> and I pretended to be the queen. <laughs> it was definitely not how envisaged my first no. encounter with a dame going down, Andy. No, well, first, first of many, John. Um, I, I, met, uh, I was interviewed this week um, oh, yeah? for a place in the England cricket team. Congratulations. Um, how did it go? Well, it went, went all right. I mean, Chris, Chris, you were there. Was yeah. Uh, Dinner with the chairman of the England cricket selectors, Jeff Miller. So this was the closest that you're probably ever going to get to get selection. You're sat there wow. in front of the selectors and the selector asked Andy, Andy, what do you bowl? To which Andy's really? re- response was, mind your own f***ing <laughs> business. <laughs> I've forgotten that bit. Oh my, how do you forget that, Andy? <laughs> You're just banking on the fact that he would respect that kind of stress. <laughs> that's, oh, right. that's yeah, interesting. Be direct. That's interesting. Yeah, he was. Just... <laughs> they, they're looking for cricketers with strong minds and not afraid to express their own opinions. And uh, oh. so, yeah, so he, he interviewed me for a, for a position on the England cricket team. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't had the call yet. <laughs> but uh, well, I think I made an impression. I think yeah. it might be coming with that conversational yeah. smackdown, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Bugle two four one. Very special Bugle 241. We have a special 241 offer. If you take a voluntary subscription out today, you can listen to this and all future Bugles twice for no extra payment. That's oh, wow. got to be pretty tempting, so double your enjoyment, uh, if it were so like that, or actually probably slightly reduce your enjoyment of the show by clicking the link at thebuglepodcast.com to keep this invaluable new source free editorially and free for those who cannot afford it or are too tight-fisted to pay or more likely too disorganised or just can't be asked, or simply hate the show and want no part in its continuing existence. Uh, this We're recording on the 19th of July. That is uh, 460 years to the day, John, since uh, 1553 England's literal teen queen, Lady Jane Grey, had her <laughs> nine-day reign as queen terminated. She was uh, only about 16 years old. What a nightmare for a teenager. I bet she threw a proper teenage strop, even more so when she was beheaded a few months later. Well, I don't want to have my head chopped off, and you can't make me. I'm going to my room. Oh, sorry, you can make me. Oh, my room is in the Tower of London, right, where I'm going to be executed. Right, we have a situation. And uh, also, 
425 years ago, another historic moment in uh, British history, 1588, the first the Spanish Armada was viewed uh, in the channel off Lizard Point in Cornwall. Oh, yeah. And uh, legend has it that England's naval warfare ace Sir Francis Drake was bowling at the time, and he was informed about the incoming Spanish fleet and responded, hey, that can wait. We've got time to go bowling and still beat the Spanish. Stop distracting me. I haven't even programmed my name into the computer yet. Oi, who, <laughs> who typed me in as Admiral Nobles? You little... Top story this week The heat is old The heat is old The heat is old Now somebody please turn the f***ing heat off Feel, feel, feel Feel my heat Um If uh If you live If you if don't, Don't finish that thought Andy If you if you live in the US or the UK, you are feeling pretty f***ing you hot right now <laughs> because it is hot here, Andy. It's it's hot here in America, and I know that the UK empathise with that because by all accounts, it's too f***ing hot there too. Oh, absolutely, um, John. Yeah, I mean, it's we're struggling with a heatwave, the like of which has never been experienced by <laughs> humanity anywhere before. Just day upon day, week upon week of burning sunshine, record temperatures. We're talking... Yep. We're talking high 20s, John. Low 30s <laughs> wow. Celsius even. It's making the wow. Sahara look like a partially refrigerated cake counter in a bakery store. It's making the Australian outback look like Skegness Beach in early April. It's making the Atacama Desert look like South America's answer to a soggy Christmas dog walk. Britain is so toasty at the moment that if you dropped it from space, it would inevitably land people side down. <laughs> you were, I mean, that, that is the thing. If you if you saw any reporting of the heat wave in the UK at the moment, and then you looked at the number that prompted that reporting, and you live anywhere else in the world, you might think, "What is wrong with these people?" But you know, look, it's it's difficult to explain. It's not. Yes, it's not technically as hot as elsewhere in Britain, but Britain is significantly less well equipped to deal with high temperatures, both physically and more importantly, emotionally. Uh, and for a start, people don't really have air conditioning in their homes in uh, in Britain. Apparently, a report in 2008 found out that just 0.5% of houses in the UK has any kind of air conditioning, whereas here, Andy, in the land of the free, the land of the incredibly cold inside when it's incredibly hot outside, <laughs> nearly 100 million homes have it, and it's possible, apparently it's possible, that air conditioning accounts for as much as 15% of total American energy consumption, <laughs> and that... It's 15%, Andy. That's a 50% portion of a pretty f***ing huge burrito. Uh, because that's the ultimate demonstration of freedom, Andy. Being on a 100-degree day, inside, able to wear a coat. That is a profound and powerful f*** you to nature. Oh, sure, you've been beating down pretty hard, Mr. Sun. It's dangerously hot outside, you say. So why, then, am I shivering in here? <laughs> It'll be exciting to see my breath when I tell you to go f*** yourself. <laughs> That's what we fought two world wars and <laughs> at least two cold wars for. The right to air-condition America. Um, and in Britain, we've been really struggling. John, I haven't seen this many people looking burnt in public since Queen Mary was barbecuing Protestants in the 1550s. <laughs> and, oh man, that, that is, that's two 1550s jokes in one show. Yeah. that could that That's... Uh, I mean, that's, that's setting the bar pretty high. Deep um, cut, Andy. Yeah. And we've, uh, it's the biggest heat wave here since 1976, when, of course, uh, you don't need me to tell you, famously the Queen Mother melted whilst watching a horse race at Royal Ascot. 
had to be taken to a special laboratory in the basement of Windsor Castle and poured into a cast of herself that they'd taken during the war. Back on duty a week later after re-solidifying. Uh, that's, uh, and uh, lived for another 20, 26 years. Um, I keep waking up and it's so hot. It's very hard to sleep. My kids are really, really struggling to get to sleep. Um, Maybe because I'm standing in the corner of their room dressed like a ghost. But but anyway, it's probably the, uh, more, more to do with the heat. But I keep waking up in the middle of the night, sweating like a guilty-feeling pig, being cross-examined about whether or not it's kosher. Um, too hot sometimes even to think about sport. That puts it in perspective. So hot, Whoa. John, that I keep thinking I'm Florence Nightingale. And um, it's becoming now so reminiscent of 1796 that I keep ex- keep expecting Mao Tung to die again or the Bay City Rollers' money honey to shoot back to the top of the Canadian pop charts. Well, you are jumping around the centuries today, aren't you, Andy? <laughs> Thank you, Wiki. Has the heat short-circuited your brain somehow? <laughs> Uh, I will say, though, Andy, uh, one of the things about uh, the kind of actual heat that we're experiencing here in New York is that it's not just about the feel, it's about the funk. There is a a powerful, thick perfume to this city at the moment. This place is a feast for the senses at the best of times, but when it's over 100 degrees outside, it becomes the kind of heat that you can not only smell, you can taste. If you could... If you could bottle the smell in New York at the moment, Andy, then your factory would be instantly shut down for health and safety violations. <laughs> that is the kind of wall of scent you are walking into. It's like walking into soup here, Andy. It's a heady scent, especially around where the Daily Show studio is in Manhattan. Because if, if you've not been there, I'm guessing most of you haven't, we are between a subway sandwich shop and the stable where they keep the Central Park horses. So there is a pungent combination bouquet in the air of subway sandwiches and warmed up horse shit which <laughs> which is combined, coming from work, John. yeah well, combined andy it smells like a shit sandwich or to put it another way a subway sandwich boom boom <laughs> boom it's caused all kinds of political ructions over here john the heat because um labor mp ben bradshaw uh committed the heinous political crime of wearing cycling shorts to a political event. <laughs> Is that true? Yes. Uh, Is that, would that make him cooler, Andy? There's a... Cycling shorts are a little... I don't know. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tight short. It's a, it is Unless a tight. that's a breathable fabric, he's looking at... <laughs> yeah. Creating a kind of one-man sauna inside his shorts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, definitely uh, one man, two egg sauna. And um, <laughs> it was David Miliband's farewell party before he jets off, uh, joining you in New York, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're at all worried about that, John. You're clearly <laughs> lighting him up. Um, uh, he's heading up the International Rescue Charity, taking over from its previous head, Jeff Tracy, who many people viewed as little more than a puppet. And uh, that's a joke for all you Thunderbird fans out there. <laughs> wow. I just don't know what has happened with your references, Andy. (laughs) Oh, I know. They've stayed exactly the same. There's actually no change here. Some people viewed uh, Ben Bradshaw's uh, shorts as perhaps the greatest act of political disgrace in Britain since Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament. Um, And oddly, he was was wearing a smart shirt. So presumably, he he must have had a pair of trousers with him. That he elected not to put on, unless he'd right. been cycling to this party, wearing his trousers as a kind of Superman cape, and they'd blown <laughs> off. Because he had the shirt to go with the trousers, John. Right. He yeah. wasn't wearing a cycling top. And this this is I mean, this basically rocks the um 
British political foundation uh, to its uh, to its knees, basically. Um, it's led to all kinds of uh, discussion of whether our fashion sense disappears as a nation when the weather gets hot. All of a sudden, yeah, things like shorts, sandals, togas, speedos, medieval suits of armour come out. Now, I'm, I'm not one to pass judgment on people's uh, fashion choices, uh, as you well know, John. Me and fashion are like the Pope and condoms. We've seldom met, and when we have, the conversation has been one-sided and awkward. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm, in no, I'm in no position to give anyone any fashion tips, as my collection of 18th century wigs will testify. Um, they will come back. Every, everything comes back. And shorts really all depend on the person. It's all relative. Roger Federer in shorts, no problem. The enormous community secretary, Eric Pickles, MP in shorts, aesthetic minefield. The Archbishop of Canterbury in shorts, constitutional minefield. The Ayatollah in shorts, war. And uh, <laughs> the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, committed an even greater heat-related clothing faux pas. He took off his shoes in his office. Oh, come on, Nick. And, come on, Nick. This was reported in the newspapers. Newspapers. New, the news. Let's concentrate on the first syllable of that. <laughs> newspapers. <laughs> but it did make me think, John, if Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister, 2IC of Britain, if he is going to take off his shoes in the office, I mean, you just think, f***ing hell, we might have let the f***ing Nazis win the war. I mean, come on, Clegg. Be British. Swelter your nuts off in a suit, tie, and a proper pair of shoes. We built a f***ing empire in unnecessarily hot countries just so we could prove that there was no climate that we were not prepared to wear an oxygen reducing neck garment in. Do you know how intimidating that must have been in the war? The German soldiers sitting there thinking, f***ing hell, these guys wear tweed jackets and a cravat in the f***ing Sudan. They must be tough as a dinosaur's ball bag. We haven't got a hope. And besides also, you need to keep the level of British formality under any circumstances. Um, uh, I mean, the, the Germans would have been blitzing the crap out of British cities. And we'd have been there wearing full morning suits saying, oh, we're terribly sorry to have rather damaged your bombs with our buildings. That was awfully rude of us, I'm sure. I'll tell you what, give us a few years, we'll replace them for you. No, don't mind, we'll just drop them off on our way over. Absolutely no problem. And you'd take your formal clothes off, John. You lose that British psychological edge. Did Churchill swan around in Bermuda shorts... Yes, but not in public. Did Thatcher wear a bikini in cabinet? Yes, but that was just to show who was boss and to keep Cecil Parkinson distracted. The point is, John, we're British. We do not take our ties, trousers and shoes off at any time. Not when we're working, not when we're at political functions, not when we're bathing, and above all, not when we're breeding. That is what made this nation what it is. I feel a little bit sick after that. <laughs> yeah. Thatcher in a bikini. Yes, yeah. not an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we've all got embarrassing and inappropriate summer clothes. Uh, my worst was when I turned up to a Captain Scott-themed summer party dressed as Raoul Amundsen. I got a very frosty reception, appropriately enough. Detroit news now. Motown may become no-town. And uh, Detroit, that is a... That's a very glib way to rhyme away the troubles of a dying city. Uh, Detroit has become the largest US city ever in history of all time uh, to file for bankruptcy, uh, declaring debts of at least £10 billion, uh, probably around $18 billion. Um, it's not looking good for Detroit, Andy. No, I see that. I mean, that sounds bad. They're never more dangerous than, uh, you know, when they're backed into a corner, but uh, this corner may be a little too pointy and narrow to get out of. Uh, the city of Detroit wants, you know, of course, a symbol of 
US industrial power, this was the, you know, they were the kings of the car industry, is seeking protection from creditors who include public sector workers and their pension funds. Oh, good, Andy. <laughs> good to see that the vulnerable are not going to be the ones to suffer here yet again. <laughs> Detroit has faced uh, decades of problems linked to the decline of its industry, although it's not really a decline so much as it is a bungee jump of industry. It's Detroit's industry bungee jumping off a cliff while also having to make cutbacks on the use of bungee cords due to the economy. So basically just jumping off a cliff. Detroit's industry has, over the last decade, jumped off a very big cliff and had the water removed at the bottom of it. It's dead. <laughs> yeah, Detroit. I'm to say. I'll see you trying to say that. And I, th- I believe you have said that now. Yeah. Detroit, uh, as you say, the renowned... Uh, City, uh, 18.5 billion bucks in the bad. It is, in economic parlance, up shit creek without a paddle or a life jacket or a boat and with a disappointingly heightened sense of smell. And as you say, John, the questions do arise. How did Motown become less town? I've done a little variation on it. Uh, yeah. Different, slightly different from my, my more British perspective on it. <laughs> Who put the Detritus into Detroit, US? Who put the lose into blues and the uh, realisation into de-endurst realisation? <clears throat> and it's very ironic that the city of Henry Ford cannot afford to buy a real uh, hen. Uh, okay. <clears throat> right, I'm done. Okay. Okay. I mean, the, the, the point is... It's literally the, sold its soul. In fact, <laughs> the market worth of a Vandella has plummeted oh. to its lowest level since the early 1970s. Okay. Okay. Are we, are we really done now, or is there a potential... Are you James Browning this one and saying, I can't go on. <laughs> I can go on. Uh, Detroit is an amazing city, or was. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is an incredible place, and they're now left with uh, a series of options. I guess, one, fake their own death. Uh, leave a note somewhere saying, uh, sorry, just couldn't go on. Don't worry, it's nobody's fault apart from institutionalised corruption, ridiculous mismanagement, and an industry that should really be stuffed and mounted to the White House's wall. <laughs> Goodbye, cruel world. And then uh, try and collect the insurance money somehow after disappearing. Uh, option two, gambling. You know, they're around $18 billion in debt, so they just need to get an $18 billion loan, go to a casino, and put it all on red. If they win, they're back in the game. If they lose, they can always go back to option one and fake their own death. (laughs) Or three, like so many people in desperate situations, Andy, they could turn to a life of crime uh, to try and rebuild their city's infrastructure. Start low level, you know, uh, steal a few buses from various other cities uh, just to get their public transport moving again. Maybe a few trams from San Francisco to throw in there as well. Then steal a few monuments, then a few buildings. You've probably got to steal some people to go in those buildings as well, just gradually so that no one notices. Then go big and start stealing some huge stuff. Golden Gate Bridge, St. Louis Arch, the Liberty Bell and Yankee Stadium, Andy. (laughs) Then Detroit is back. Well, we say I mean, crime is an option, but I mean, this is actually one of the problems. In uh, under nine percent of criminal cases are solved in Detroit, part because they have a fifty-eight percent, uh, fifty-eight minute police response time compared with eleven minutes as the uh, national average. Um, mm-hmm. Seventy-eight thousand abandoned buildings—that that seems a lot. Yes. Uh, over 100,000 creditors, and I'm guessing not all of them are the pay-me-back-when-you-can-love maternal kind of creditor. <laughs> and one-third of ambulances are out of service, which I think is yeah. the silver lining to this uh, financial black cloud. Because, I mean, fair enough. Why bother living longer if you know, you've know you got a chance not to in these circumstances? I mean, you're going to ring up the ambulance and say, yeah, I've just skewered myself on a railing. Uh, fell out the window whilst taking a run-up to kick my TV to pieces. I know I shouldn't watch the local news anymore. I know, I know that now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm probably going to bleed out in 15 to 20. Nah, don't bother. I've seen the figures. There's nothing for me here. And one less pension to pay. I'll take one for the team. But to me as an outsider, you look at the, the stats, 40% of streetlights not working. At least 78,000 buildings unoccupied. The lights aren't on and no one's home. It sounds like the city equivalent of the Duke of Edinburgh. And it still has some, <laughs> still has some lingering race issues as well. Bugle feature section now, pseudonyms and a publishing sensation here in Britain this week. J.K. Rowling, the woman behind the uh, Harry Potter uh, books and general world-dominating media franchise. A uh, woman who's generally found that the pen might not be mightier than the sword, but it is certainly more lucrative than the sword. Um, <laughs> she secretly wrote a crime novel under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith, had it published, uh, and it had sold around about 1,500 copies before her secret was leaked by a law firm, oddly, and the book has now accidentally shot to the top of the bestseller lists. And um, it seems an appropriate moment. Was that law firm representing her publishers, Andy? (laughs) I've no idea. She did seem genuinely annoyed by it. Yeah, I'm sure she was, but... uh... I'm guessing their publishers yep. maybe a little loose with their tongue around town. <laughs> yep. It'd be really nice if this sold a thousand times the amount that it is. <laughs> yeah, and the rest. Overnight. Um, I'm sure they're absolutely devastating and giving all the money to a charity yeah. for abandoned authors. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a great tradition in uh, throughout literary history of uh, famous writers uh, using pseudonyms to publish things uh, secretly. Uh, James Joyce. Uh, you're a big fan of, uh, of the JJ, aren't you, John? A massive, uh, massive Joyce fan. Um, did you study Joyce at university or not? Uh, well, I definitely looked at a lot of the books right. that, uh, at them. Yeah. Some of the back- as I looked along a line of books. <laughs> Some of the back covers are excellent. I know that. Uh, anyway, James Joyce, the famously obtuse Irish wordsmith, author, author of such incomprehensible classics as Ulysses and the hauntingly ahead of its time Judy Finnegan's Wake, also wrote the classic six-book series of girls' boarding school novels, Mallory Towers. <laughs> anyone who's ever tried to read them backwards will testify. Uh, he wrote them under the pseudonym Enid Blyton, which was already used by the prominent children's novelist Enid Blyton, who everyone assumed the books were by. Um, later, Judy Bloom's teen girl novels were, of course, written by none other than President Dwight Eisenhower, and in accordance with the great man's will, were published uh, posthumously. Uh, he said that uh, writing... Um, Writing fiction from the point of view of a teenage girl, really, you found it very relaxing during uh, the heightened situation of the the 1950s global political situation. Uh, American publishing sensation Edgar Allan Poe released a three-volume treatise on the history of the commemorative figurine, entitled A History of the Commemorative Figurine in Three Volumes, under the pen name The Slaughtering Claw of Death. (laughs) <laughs> whilst the controversial fatwa-winning novelist Salman Rushdie is rumoured to have authored a number of celebrity autobiographies, including Stephen Gerrard's My Liverpool Story and pop singer Cheryl Cole's Cheryl, My Story, plus the surprisingly controversial critique of the National Health Service, The Satanic Nurses. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Eric Carle, the author-illustrator of The Very Hungry Caterpillar, uh, is also rumoured to have been the literary parodist Ethel Nazi behind such genre-lampooning erotic classics as The Penis of Monte Cristo, Wang of the D'Urbervilles, and 1984. <laughs> well, it all started with Shakespeare, of course, uh, famously the pseudonym under which uh, most turn-of-the-16th-17th-century playwrights published their works. Uh, Shakespeare, of course, uh, used by, amongst others, your John Webster's, your Francis Bacon's, your Chrissy Marlowe's and your Eddie De Vere's, not to mention other candidates like um, Queen Elizabeth I, 
now widely accredited as the author of um, Shakespeare's little-known uh, play, The True Story of the Awesome Ginger Queen, uh, Francis Drake, the aforementioned Francis Drake, uh, prob- now viewed as the probable writer of Shakespeare's work, Frankie Two Hats and the Armada Guarders, and Drake's fellow explorer, Walter Raleigh, uh, credited with bringing potatoes, tobacco and uh, children's bicycles back to Britain from uh, the Americas. And people saw uh, saw his hand in some of the blatant product placement in Shakespeare's work as evidence that Raleigh was the author, uh, including such famous quotes as, is this a potato I see before me? And uh, ate two brute, I ate three, can't beat a spud. And have thou have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest, lend less than thou owest, with the smooth taste of Raleigh's high-tar lungbuster cigarettes. <laughs> uh and of course, uh, well, back to the subject of J.K. Rowling, uh, as revealed way back in Bugle issue three, the lead singer of the British acid jazz band Jamiroquai actually had a hit single in which he impersonated an angry bear entitled Get Out of My Bins and released the song under the name J.K. Growling. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but if you're going to be too busy to do more than one or two stories, then I'm going to have to pat it out with some shit. <laughs> this could be, this could... This you didn't think of that rough, when you took the job, did you, John? A, I know, you did not think of the consequences. This, before I can re-engage in the bugle, this could be a rough month, people. <laughs> Your emails now. Uh, we have an, an email from uh, here from Anne in Wisconsin, uh, who says, "Dear Chris, Andy, and John, because Chris is so rarely listed first, uh, I just listened to Friday's episode of the Bugle, and uh, the only response I have is that it sounds like the Revolution Number Nine of Bugle episodes. It's either genius or something you can't even listen to because it's so unintelligible." I listened to it backwards, and it told me that Andy died in a car crash three years ago, and the man we think is Andy is actually named Henry Borden, an ex-cricketer, which is why he tries so hard to make us care about cricket. This also explains why the Bugle logo needed to be an illustration and not a picture with Andy's back to the camera or walking barefoot. I'm going to go back to previous Bugle episodes to listen to all of them backwards to see if I can find out more clues. And now, I haven't, I haven't heard it yet, uh, Chris. <laughs> The episode you put out last yeah. week, but it sounds f***ing weird. It's certainly, it's certainly, uh, it, it's split opinion. It's uh, slathered some whipped cream on it and it's popped the cherry on top. It was about time the audience got the truth. <laughs> it, I mean, we got a lot of, a lot of probably more emails about this subject than any other uh, topic in the, the history of the universe. Um, this email came in from Steve. Subject, whatever the f*** it was you released on the 12th of July. Dear Chris, Andy and John, in order of whom I choose to blame for the item mentioned in the subject line, I have or possibly had a friend. This is a good friend, one I value quite highly. This friend trusted my judgment enough to ask for a few podcast recommendations. I mentioned a small handful of, as I referred to them at the time, quality bits of sound, including, of course, the bugle. This possibly now former friend grabbed the most recent thing at the time, the f***ing thing mentioned in the f***ing subject line, and gave it a listen. This friend will no longer speak to me. <laughs> Fix this, damn your eyes. Fix it. Sincerely, with an otherwise appropriate level of respect, Steve. That's what you've done, Chris. That's going on my CV, that. That's what you've done. John's broken the Daily Show and you've broken the bugle. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, what we, we also put out a, a best... Uh, in, in advance of the Magic Royal Baby, which is due literally any second now, um, we put out a, did, did also put out a best of... Uh, Best of the Royal Family, Best of Wills and Kate's Bugle compilation. Uh, and um, I'll probably see a lot of buglers uh, watching the birth live on the big screen in Hyde Park 
Um, huge screens, live relay from the uh, birthing footage, and I believe Steve Redgrave has been <laughs> booked in as the midwife, or it could be David Beckham, or it could be a uh, representative sample of London youth. We don't, uh, we don't yet know. There are a lot of excitement about the uh, imminent, uh, imminent birth in uh, America, John, and maybe, yeah. maybe we could. I mean, it would be, it'd be nice. It'd be a lovely gesture if, having had the baby, they just sent it to De- to Detroit. To spread its uh, its magic. That is a nice idea. If she really cared about Detroit, and I don't think she does, and she has no real need to, (laughs) then she she'd give birth there, put the city back on the map. (laughs) So GQ emails coming into info at thebuglepodcast.com. Do check out our webpage, thebuglepodcast.com, where you can uh, buy merch and uh, also take out your voluntary subscription. And uh, uh, don't forget to look at our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. And you can also get the uh, our cricket podcast, The Greatest Test, also at SoundCloud. Uh, now, John, I mean, the Ashes have been... Uh, you left Britain from your brief brief stay here. Yeah. On the morning that the Ashes I began. I did. Yeah, bef- just before the first ball. Um, which And you missed one of the greatest test matches there's uh, there's ever been. I imagine it probably got wall-to-wall coverage in the uh, American American media. Well, the pi- thankfully, the pilot was doing a ball-for-ball commentary, Andy. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of our American listeners find it hard to uh, relate to cricket. Uh, as I wrote in my cricket blog this week, I said, a good test match is often compared to a gripping novel. But the difference is that uh, you, know, you can flip to the end <laughs> of a novel and find out what happens, which you can't do in a test match. I mean, a novel, <laughs> you can skip to the end to discover whether or not Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy finally snap and gun down the interfering Mrs. Bennett and the rest of the Bennett family in a hail of bullets before escaping on a motorbike and fleeing to Mexico. You can find out whether or not the Lion and the Witch end up getting it on in the wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> whether Willy Wonka ever gets his deserved legal comeuppance for breaching all manner of employment and health and safety regulations. Whether the Gruffalo is finally shot by poachers and its body parts sold as decorative ashtrays. Or what happens to caterpillars with serious eating disorders? But you can flip to the end of a book, but not of a test match, John, and that's what, what makes it so engrossing. And with public attention comes commercial opportunity. And um, the bookmaker, Paddy Power, uh, put up a, a, an advert. They projected an advert onto the uh, outfield at the Oval Cricket Ground with a picture of England captain Alistair Cook and the caption, Captain Cook, civilising Aussies since 1770. <laughs> Which... Um, <laughs> It's not the most historically sensitive comment to no, make. No, I mean, it's not really. There's a number of things wrong with it. I mean, Captain Cook landed in Australia on his first global visit in 1770. Didn't really start civilising the Aussies there. He stole yeah. some of their spears and helped himself to a bunch of flowers, but didn't really do a lot else. And then uh, basically f***ed off around the world. And um, uh, before he claimed the east coast of Australia for Britain without telling the people who already live there. Uh, and I'm not sure that they necessarily thought of themselves at the time as Aussies. Um, the subsequent <laughs> British people who followed Captain Cook uh, to what became known as Australia had a bit of a tendency to civilise these Aussies in the way that you might try to civilise a clay pigeon or in the way that Theodore Roosevelt tried to civilise African wildlife. Uh, and then they um, assimilated those proto-Aussies who were around in 1770 into Australian society by, amongst other things, giving them smallpox, that traditional European police to meet who have some death present, also by stealing their land, stealing their children, devastating their communities and way of life, and if all else failed, shooting them a bit more. But still, don't worry, 
it's just a harmless joke. All is fair in advertising. Just a bit, a little bit of banter about a long past genocide. As long as it encourages people to indulge in that most civilised of British activities, online gambling, then fair enough. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, this week's Bugle uh, 241. We'll be back with Bugle 242 next week, at which point there will be no cricket going on during the middle of a match. We've just seen an Australian player get out testicles before wickets in an exciting, <laughs> exciting new development for cricket. The nut shot. That's, uh, I mean, that's 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 a very exciting, uh, exciting development in in cricket. And I know the wang shot in in baseball has been quite an effective uh, yeah, that's a kind classic. of bunt technique for some while, hasn't it? But uh, so we'll be back next week. John, uh, enjoy your next... Uh, what, what, have you got any big-name guests coming up on The Daily Show this week? Uh, uh, Louis C.K. on Monday. Oh, right, nice. That yeah. should be very interesting. And uh, the Egyptian uh, national football coach on Thursday. <laughs> An American man. He's going right. to be very... He's in a very, very interesting position. And in both the footballing and, I guess at the moment, more political sense. Because... Uh, I mean, does he? Because I know Mohamed Morsi reckons that the Egyptian national team should play a kind of traditional four-four-two. Yeah. But um, you know, some of the more secular uh, people in Egypt think they should go with a, like a wing-backs formation. So I, I don't know how uh, they'll never be going to square that circle. They'll they'll never be peace, Andy. Until then, buglers. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>